Um, okay, thank you very much for coming to, uh, I think it's the last plenary of the conference, um, so well put together by our program organizers. Uh, this, I think, is the third panel with Trump in the title, um, but this is the one that actually is referring to Canada in particular. Um, so the official title of the program is the Trumpization of Canada, Can It Happen Here? I think we should call it Are We As Nice As We Think? Um, we have with us um, a variety of scholars from different areas to, uh, to, to speak with us today. So we have Peter Lowen, Eilat uh, Shassar, Deborah Thompson, and uh, Bill Cross. Um, but just to contextualize a little bit uh, what we are going to be talking about today, um, some of you might remember headlines like this that we saw in November last year. All of a sudden, right, you're getting these emails from your friends saying, hey, is your university hiring? Uh, gotta get out, gotta get out. And there was this idea that all this, you know, Canada must be good. All of a sudden, Trudeau was looking even better to a lot of people. Um, however, earlier this year, some work by Allison Harrell says, uh, hold up now, y'all aren't all that nice. And so this is kind of, I think, some of the things that we need to start thinking about. We have this image of ourselves, and other people may have this image of Canadians as being nice. In fact, I think that's the Roots uh, slogan for the 150th, nice. Um, however, on some dimensions, uh, we may be a little full of ourselves. So let's hear what our panelists have to say. We'll start with Peter. Thanks very much. Uh, can you hear me at the back all right? You can? Great. So I'm, uh, I'm talking today about, uh, briefly I suppose, about the electoral prospects for an anti-immigration party in Canada. The, 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 the question here is largely, uh, you know, is there, a, is there a coalition present for a party that runs on a, an anti-immigrant slash some other uh, set of policies that, uh, that model those of, uh, of, Donald, uh, of Donald Trump? Um, so you'll know that, 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 that if we spent 10 or 12 minutes talking about this, we'll spend more time thinking about it systematically than Mr. Mr. Trump did, but that's fine. Uh, uh, he has a marketer's intuition, and that's worth, uh, that's worth, worth something. Um, so what I want to ask really are, are kind of two related questions. Uh, they're really the flip side of each other. The first is, what's the potential for a populist, nativist, anti-globalist, anti-politics party in Canada? And what are the limiting factors on this? And I think it's important that we try to get a handle on uh, what the real potential here is for a party that uh, that takes a strong uh, anti-immigration position. I'm actually winning in Canada. And to preview the story, to give you a little bit of what you're going to see, I'm going to tell you and hope to convince you that I think the prospects for this have some natural uh, and rather severe constraints on them, and that's a good a good thing. And we might just set the stage a little bit. I mean, these I think are the big the big trends that are that are driving this conversation globally, and I'll try and contextualize Canada globally in a second. But the one is that you know we we are seeing a retreat from a rules based globalism, you know, and 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 I and I, I don't know that matters except to the degree that you know uh, there are certain things that constrain elites and what they're willing to put on the table, and some of those things are commitments outside of our countries, and there's a retreat from that, and that that blows things open a little bit. There's an increased focus on migration, I think, that, that if we were to look at the frequency with which migration is discussed and the importance of it in elections, we can overblow that for sure. That, that probably happens a lot. But there is, uh, I think, more discussion about issues of migration than ever before. And I think that we have to square up to the reality that the, the pressures on migration, that is the pressure for people to move from place to place, are only increasing, uh, and not only due to conflagrations in the Middle East, but to all sorts of problems. Uh, coming with climate change and with just the ease of movement that's come in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. 
there's greater economic uncertainty, there's an increase in nativism, this sense that you know things were better in my country before, and it has to do with the composition of my country. There's an underlying strain of what some people call anti-politics, this notion that politicians actually you know, uh, don't do their jobs well, and that politics is a bad business, and that they're only out for themselves, and I think this sentiment is increasing. And in the Canadian case, there happens to be, and this is going to be a relevant factor, I think, uh, if we set the stage here, there is an electoral system that prioritizes larger coalitions. That is, it prioritizes the ability of one party, if it's going to win, to win 30, 40, 35, 40, 45% of the vote, rather than uh, 30% or, or, or 25% and then to enter into uh, a post-election um, coalition. Um, I just want to get a, give you a sense of where Canada is. There's a bit of a puzzle in this for me. And the issue is that this, this, this is plotting OECD countries in terms of their foreign-born population on the x-axis and their trade as a percentage of GDP or their trade openness or their dependability on international economies in the left-hand axis. And you see that actually Canada is not that trade dependent. We're down there at 20 and 24. Um, and we look a lot like New Zealand, we look a lot like Australia. Uh, we don't look like a lot of countries in Europe, by the way, for which there is a large degree of anti-immigrant sentiment, but the way we're different from them is not the degree to which we have large foreign-born populations. We're much more out on that dimension. It's that we are a lot less um, uh, open in terms of the economies, but that's part of that's an artifact of being the EU. But the curious case is the United States, right? Where on, on the mean, in the main, their foreign-born population isn't much more than the average of their comparators around the world, and yet there's such a strain of anti-immigrant politics. Um, and in Canada and in Australia, we've somehow uh, avoided this to the same to the same extent, though. We're, we're probably better on that record than the, than the United States. So here are the considerations that I want to put on the table as we think about the potential for an anti-immigration party in Canada. One is, I, I just want us to look quickly at the role of anti-immigrant sentiment and vote choice. Does it matter? Right? And to what degree does do people's holding anti-immigrant views or, or views that are skeptical on the issue of immigration, if you will, and we can separate those out a little bit, but skeptical on the issue of immigration. How do these matter for vote choice? And the second is, what's the macro level distribution of votes across potential dimensions of competition? That's another way of asking in some ways, is there a coalition out there that has an anti-immigrant basis to it that's being unexploited by any of the parties? And I'm gonna show you that I'm not convinced that there is. Okay. On the first point for immigrant vote choice, I would just, I would just ask you to do this if, if, if you want to see what happens here. Take the last CES, it's publicly available. Go ahead and estimate a model of conservative vote choice as a function of all those kind of standard control variables you'd have, income, age, gender, uh, region. Observe whether a person's an, immig an immigrant. Observe their views on immigration. Uh, and then observe the interaction between those two. And the CES has a lot of nice questions in the last uh, iteration on immigration. It lets you ask questions like, uh, you know, should we spend more money on immigrants? Are we doing too much? How many immigrants should we let in? How do you feel about immigrants personally? They all scale up together. They're undercovering, they're recovering a single dimension. Put that in there and then do the interaction of both of those things. And what you'll find is the following. You'll find that support, and think about this for a second, support for the Tories in the last election was highest among immigrants who uh, have uh, 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 non-positive views on immigration. Let's put, it, let's put it that way, okay? Support for the Tories was highest among immigrants who had non-positive views on immigration. If you then look at the people who have positive views on immigration, you'll find that support for conservatives uh, was lowest among all those people who have pro-immigration views. On that, immigrants and uh, uh, 
native-born Canadians don't differ. The difference is, is that support for the Tories is highest among those immigrants who have not yet bought into the broad consensus we have about immigration in our country, and that's not a small group uh, in number as a percentage of immigrants. It turns out to be about half, okay? But the idea here that there's some large demographic shift as we become a more and more uh, immigrant-based society that's going to move us away from a party that has traditionally had more sharper views on immigration um, isn't, 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 isn't supported. This is the distribution of voters across two dimensions. These data are taken from our local parliament project, but I'll show you some data from the CS at the same time. And imagine we say, well, what's the distribution of voters across two different dimensions? Whether they hold pro-immigration or anti-immigration views, in this case measured by whether they want levels to go up or down, or whether they, and whether they hold pro-trade or anti-trade views. And the modal coalition in Canada is the one in which uh, parties appeal to pro-immigration and pro-trade views. Open immigration, open borders, right? Open to trade, open to people. 39, 40% of Canadians find themselves in that part of the quadrant, okay? They're dispersed essentially equally across the other parts of the quadrant. This is essentially the same story if you break it down by voters for parties, okay? Of, among liberal voters in the last election, 45% of them find themselves in that open, open quadrant. 36% for conservatives, 36% for new Democrats. The modal position, again, the modal place to be, place where the most uh, fish are, if you're interested in catching them, is in the open, open quadrant. We could ask a different question. We could say, what happens, let's say that the, the potential for a party isn't around having an anti-immigrant, anti-trade sort of view, but an anti-immigrant, anti-politics view, a kind of a populist story. And there are some items in this from the CES now where you can pull that out. And the story you'll find there again is that the modal Canadian resides in a position where they're positive net on immigration and, and they're net positive on politics. They believe pol politicians, for the most part, keep their promises. They think politicians care about what people like them think. Okay? Um, and you can just a few other items in there. I can, I can articulate what they are to you later. But the modal Canadian is, is, is there. The one story is that they're not there among conservative voters. Okay? The modal liberal voter is there. 50% of liberal voters in the last election occupied that quadrant. 39% of New Democrats do. The modal position for the Tories is that 35% of their voters are there. Okay? That they're anti-immigrant and anti-politics. But the complication, of course, is that that's a very small percentage of voters. Just a quarter of them. Right? And if you want to try and make a party, that governs on 35% of 27% of voters, you'll get about 9% of voters. And if you want to be a party that tries to govern on 26% of 36, you'll get about 9% of voters. Even if we break it down by region, you see there's not a story where this is something where this is variegated largely over region and we're, we're just averaging over it. The modal position in most places, uh, most regions of the country, is up in that normal politics pro-immigration quadrant. Uh, it's a different story for the conservatives, but again, it's a smaller group. Okay, I wanted to say quickly that the, the, the underlying all of this is, is, is two things, I think. One is a generally positive distribution or disposition towards immigration in Canada. If you look at opinions on immigration in Canada broadly measured and compare them to other countries, we are more positive on average. And there is a certain degree to which politicians are not, like, uh, are not exploiting of these. I want to talk about the first thing, though. One is that can these opinions change? Can you quickly change opinions? 
My view of it is, is that it's, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult for parties to change their positions, which is the first point there. But voters' positions and their intuitions on immigration are actually hard to move quickly. Okay? And I don't think the story of Trump is that he's convinced a lot of people that they have the wrong views on immigration. It's that he's talked about uh, 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 immigration uh, and there were already negative views there. But just to give you an illustration of this, I think the signal event, the single most uh, notable event during the last election, early on at least, was when that image of that little boy, Alan Kurdi, on that beach in Bodrum, Turkey pops up. And it's a very, it's, it's a perfect storm, right? And, and that the conservatives don't know how to respond to it. Chris Alexander does a terrible job of addressing it, does a terrible job of fixing it, then does a terrible job of fixing it again. Um, and everyone talks about it. And um, I can tell you that we were measuring in the local parliament project people's views on whether Canada ought to accept more refugees. And if you interviewed someone on September 1st, the average person was somewhere between degree, uh, disagree, and neither agree nor disagree with the sentiment that we should let in more refugees. And that picture hits the news and the story takes over for three days. And uh, views on whether we should let in more refugees skyrocket from somewhere between disagree and neither agree nor disagree to half a point closer to neither agree nor disagree. There's just no change, right? And then they, they just move back and regress back in the position that they were in. If you can find a more, a more kind of crystallizing event that talks about migration issues in an election, I'd like to hear it. That's the most crystallizing I've seen, and it does nothing to move people's baseline positions, and by the end of the campaign, they've moved back to something else. I'm going to wrap it up here and just say the following. These, to me, are the systemic constraints. Party coalitions are broadly composed, and they're slow changing. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's clear that... that, that Canada's relationship with other countries is uh, one that we understand in various ways, sometimes through trade, sometimes through policies of integration, sometimes through questions of our relationship with the United States, but it's been a fundamental building block of Canadian coalitions, and I, I, as it seems in almost every talk I give, I recommend that people read the, the section of letting the people decide where they show the movement of party coalitions and how that moved on issues of relationships with other countries or understanding of ourselves and how slowly it happened. Right? And the idea that a party in our system has the, the room to maneuver to suddenly change position on immigration and suddenly become an anti-immigrant party and move on that seems to me to, def and to be successful, seems to me to defy the historical evidence. You know, different electoral systems provide different incentives, and I don't want to. I don't want to get into a long discussion about electoral reform. That issue is dead in Canada as of as of yesterday, uh, uh, at the federal level. Um, but I will note uh, only that I think that there are uh, pretty poor returns in Canada to being a virulently anti-immigrant party compared to other countries, which are equally as uh, as diverse as our own, but have more open. Uh, and more permissive electoral systems. And I think that sometimes you dodge bullets and you don't realize that you have. And there are perhaps minimal norms among our party leaders that constrains their, their rhetoric. Minimal norms. Now, I think we pushed up against them in the last election. I think the Conservatives went a long way, by the way, farther than I would have liked in, in saying things about things like the niqab and saying things about things like uh, uh, barbaric cultural practices, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't do it, by the way, because people thought it because uh, voters didn't want it, right? The overwhelming majority of voters supported a ban on the kneecap that uh, both in citizenship ceremonies and in the public service, that's true among immigrants and it's true among native-born Canadians, okay? The story of our politics isn't that people hold opinions like that, it's that politicians have some constraint on how much they're willing to talk about them. Um, and um, 
I'll just say that, uh, in, to wrap up, I think that we're in an equilibrium position. No party has a clear incentive to move from that, from that open, open quadrant. And if we were to see a successful move off of it, then we're in a completely new world. And I don't think that we're, uh, we're going to get there. And I'll just quote, close with a quote that I like a lot. <coughs> which is by Paul Keating, who's one of my political heroes, the Australian Prime Minister. He said, you know, we've got to the stage where everybody thinks politicians aren't worth two bobs, where everybody disparages, disparages us every time we get an increase in salary, but politicians uh, change the world. And I think that the, the, the organizing fact in Canada is that our politicians have limited uh, uh, incentives right now to move us away from this almost glorious position we're in of having a system of open migration and open borders and, and, and open trade. Um, and until we give them the incentives to do it, they won't do it and they're not there now. So uh, in sum, I'm not, uh, I'm not terribly worried about the Trumpization of Canada. Uh, I'm more worried about verbs like Trumpization, I guess. Okay, thanks very much. Hello everyone, bonjour, guten tag, shalom, buenos dias, assalamu alaikum. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very delighted for this invitation uh, to speak to you uh, this afternoon as part of this plenary panel. Now in terms of my position, I have to start with that. I'm a bit of an insider-outsider to this crowd and I'll explain uh, in two minutes why that is the case. So first of all, for many, many years, I've been at the University of Toronto, affiliated with both political science and law. But the truth is, I taught most of my courses in law, so it must have affected my thinking in a deeper way. So although I uh, share the political science uh, department and thinking, I do think I'll bring a little bit of the legal as well into my comments. And another reason why I'm going to position myself as an insider-outsider is the fact that over the past uh, two years, I've been uh, in Germany as a director for the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity. Uh, as it happened, I arrived there in September 2015, literally with the refugees. So I have had uh, just a fascinating experience as an observer and partly as a policy uh, advisor in thinking through uh, the very major challenges of dealing with a very mass influx into um, a set of countries in Europe which uh, have not necessarily invited uh, the refugees uh, to enter uh, their territory. So I'll try and draw on this comparative as well as legal analysis as I go through uh, the question that we have been asked to address, that is how likely is it that we'll see anything like Trump um, here in Canada. And in addressing this question, I'm going to follow uh, three core points, and I'll use a strategy that always puzzled my first year law students, but I'm going to follow it nonetheless. That is, I'm going to first present to you the strongest case about why I think it's unlikely that we will see a rise in the sentiment of anti-immigrant, uh, anti-globalism, uh, the kind of populism that we have seen south of the border and elsewhere. So here I'll follow, uh, in many ways, uh, the kind of line that Peter has advanced. But I will make the lawyerly move, which is to say, in the alternative, after I'll try and convince you in one direction, I'm going to switch gears and I'll actually give you the other side. I'll say why, I think, despite the fact that we might currently have an equilibrium, we might see some, um, there, there might be some reasons, uh, some cause for concern, not necessarily on the party front, but just in the sense of the kind of data that Laura has presented to us, actually the deeper undercurrents, and it might just require uh, some kind of a leader who uh, is, uh, 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 who has uh, the ability to turn those sentiments into some kind of a political uh, uh, movement uh, that uh, worries me. So this is by way of introduction. So in terms of why I don't think we'll see anything like uh, Trump or the kind of anti-immigrant sentiment that we have seen south of the border and in Europe and in other parts of the world, uh, I want to provide several reasons. Uh, the first one is just uh, 
And, I'll, and I, you know, we, we got to political explanations. So what I'll try and do is add the legal, cultural, and structural, so to speak. And I'll start with the latter, the structural. So Canada, just by way of pure geographical fortune, structurally is very, very difficult to reach. That is, if you try to reach this country, most uh, people who come to this country, either as visitors or as immigrants, have to fly in. Now, the fact that you need to fly in means, again, here I'm talking to you from the perspective of immigration law as an immigration control person, that is seen as a tremendous advantage for this country. It means that almost everyone that tries to get in can be screened prior to embarking on a plane. Any of you from your travels internationally, you would know you get screened prior to ever embarking on a plane. This means that it's much, much harder for un uninvited uh, arrivals uh, to come here. And of course, there are also some serious con uh, concerns about this kind of a policy that Canada has embraced for the last 15 years very, very explicitly of pushing the border out and trying to control people prior to their arrival. If you are a refugee claimant, for example, an asylum seeker, actually legally you're not supposed to even show documents. That's part of the 1951 convention. Nonetheless, uh, it might well be that if you're trying to board a plane to Canada, you will be blocked. And if you're blocked at that stage, it's not at all clear that you have a constitutional challenge against Canada, that you're even eligible to try and seek the kind of status that you would have been able to seek had you landed in Canada. So just pure geopolitical factors that here provide an advantage uh, to Canada. Another interesting thing about, so this, uh, I, I mentioned this because this means that in the public image of Canada, and, and also I'd actually say in, in terms of policy per se, it's not just a perception, it's also partly descriptively uh, accurate, the fact that Canada has such strict control, plus the fact that our legal structure requires the government, any government in Canada, conservative, liberal, what have you, to actually uh, table each year a set of targets, target numbers, the, the kind of uh, categories that this country wishes to bring in, and we have three categories in our legislation, refugees, family members, and what are referred to as independent economic migrants. For the past, uh, last uh, almost 20 years, the economic migrant category has been the dominant category, but nonetheless, there's a sense that the numbers are clear, the targets are clear, and surprisingly enough, actually, the governments, uh, again, various governments have been able to roughly uh, get the right numbers. That is, they were able to correlate their targets with the, with the actual intake per year. This means that in terms of public trust in Canada, we've seen much greater public trust of the government in the sense of having control over who gets in and under what conditions. And I mentioned this because part of the reason why we have seen in Britain, the UK, and across Europe, this sense of distrust of politicians is the loss of control. It's a major, major thing in the story of immigration. So if you have a sense of loss of control, and the, the concern with that particular loss of control theme, it might be grounded in actual numbers and facts, but it might be a total perception. Nonetheless, once it, if it gets um, ingrained in the public mind, it's very, very hard to reverse it. So this loss of control has been central, as we know, to the US debate. This is the kind of uh, the build the wall kind of rhetoric. Uh, of course, take that control in the UK. Brexit debate was central. And in Europe, especially in Germany, which I want to just mention to you, if you recall, in the first few months after the refugees have started to arrive to Europe, Germany actually waived its right to send immigrants back to their first point of entry after Dublin, which would have been, in most cases, Greece or Italy. So Germany unilaterally waived that requirement, meaning that any asylum seeker that arrived to Germany had the right to seek asylum. And I should mention to you, it's the right to seek asylum. It's not the same as getting that status. But the, the ability to actually seek that status was what the German government uh, gave. And it was very significant, and we've really seen that that time a very, very significant intake over a million people who arrived in a very, very short period of time. But in terms of the public perception, at least initially in the public behavior, there was a tremendous amount of uh, goodwill. If you recall, people uh, gave food and clothes and, and uh, provided shelter and were willing to uh, really embrace the newcomers. That changed 
in a very, very, very quick manner. It took about three months or so for people to start questioning this policy. And this is sort of amazing. Why three months? What happened? The major thing that at least the, the commentators in Germany would trace, of course, the event in Cologne, if you remember the New Year's events, or the sense of potential violence against women, um, just the sense of, of, of cultural issues, which I'll get back to in a minute. But the real sense that was traced was this loss of control. Why was there a loss of control? There was no upper limit. There was no quota that Germany or any, uh, or at least Germany didn't impose any quota. And Merkel, when she was attacked, it was precisely on this point, saying, how many people could come here? We're already at these high numbers. Are you ever going to put a limit? And she said, I cannot put a limit constitutionally. She was probably correct. Nonetheless, politically, this was um, for her. Uh, this led to her fall, if you recall, in, in, in any kind of public policy sense that she had no control, that no one really knew how many people would come in, when will this wave end. So when this loss of control occurred, the public sentiment shifted absolutely, and we just saw this again, that it's traceable. Now, it, it's, it's an interesting question vis-a-vis -vis Peter's point. If this is stable, maybe perhaps people were anti-immigrant prior, and this was just a peak and we're going back, it would be interesting to question that or explore that. But nonetheless, the public sentiment changed dramatically because there was a sense of loss of control. So as I said, Canada is, is actually uh, in that sense fortunate because of the structural issues of, of where we are geopolitically and because of our relatively stable and well-controlled immigration policy, plus the fact that Canada for the last 50 years, this is since the 1966 White Paper on Immigration, later on the 1976 Immigration Act, which was followed by the 2001 IRCA Act, all of these uh, pieces of legislation have, uh, have been very clear about, as I said, targets, but also the fact that the kind of immigrants that we get are usually skilled and they're well integrated. So in terms of the public opinion in Canada, there's a tremendous high of support for immigrants. That The latest data that we have from 2011 by a study done by my former colleague at U of T, uh, Jeff Wright, uh, his data was that the support of Canadians um, is 58% of Canadians are supporting high levels of immigration. It's a stunning number compared to the world that we live in. So we would never get similar numbers now in the United States or in Britain or in, in I would say, in any country uh, across uh, the European Union. So we have high levels of support. We also have objectively high numbers of immigrants in Canada. We have roughly one in five Canadians is a foreign-born uh, immigrant to this country. Uh, it's the highest in the G8. The only country that actually beats us is Australia. Their numbers are roughly one to four. So they have a higher percentage of, of, of uh, immigrants in their population. So just to summarize the, the argument in favor, um, just geopolitically, structurally, uh, good fortune of Canada where it is located. It's easier to control who gets in and a very stable uh, legal immigration policy in terms of who gets in, who does not get in. Of course, that could shift. We know even recently that since the adoption of stricter policies by Trump uh, in the United States, we have seen more people trying to cross the border, the land border, the US and Canada land border. Now, traditionally, the US for us has served as a buffer zone. People who say came from Latin America or Central America to the US did not wish to travel up north. We know that now with the restrictions on refugees, there, there are people who are trying to get into Canada and intentionally they're not passing through recognized ports of entry because if they had entered through a recognized port of entry, the safe third country agreement would kick in and in most cases they would have to be turned back. However, if you come in without permission, that is if you cross the border illegally according to our immigration law, you actually have a much greater chance of success because your case will be heard. Um, you'll, you'll get usually a full hearing and the percentages uh, are, are higher of your Successor, there's actually an incentive for you not to cross through um, recognized uh, 
port of entry, we will have to see, is this a trickle or this, will this change, will this uh, erode public trust? We don't know. This is really, it's too soon to tell. But if I spoke to you earlier about this loss of control, I would keep a very, very watchful eye on those developments. That's the thing that we know has really shifted the opinion in other countries. And I think we have no guarantee that nothing like this would happen here in Canada. But just in the interest of, of time, so I've spoken to you about the structural and the legal. I want to say just a few words about the cultural. Um, and this is, again, where I see some room for concern about uh, the future, whether or not we'll see a greater anti-immigrant sentiment in this country, uh, yes or no. Um, so I think if you want to think about possible scenarios where we will see a rise or, or a, a, a trend towards, towards greater um, political uh, uh, rhetoric against immigrants, um, I think there we would see an abuse, I would say, of the cultural element, by which I mean to say we pride ourselves in this country uh, for our commitment to multiculturalism, to diversity. Uh, we have a very progressive uh, constitution and a very progressive uh, Supreme Court. Um, but if we look at counter-narratives, I think that they are there and they are very, very present and prevalent. So let me just mention three examples uh, that I want to uh, mention to you in the sense of this uh, potential cultural values counter-narrative that may actually lead to a shift in public opinion against immigrants. Um, so the first example you will remember, and I think, Peter, you just mentioned it towards the end of your um, discussion. You remember the face cover ban and the citizenship test, which was a ban that was introduced by the Harper government. In fact, it was a ministerial act. It was not even uh, ever really uh, debated in parliament. Um, and that particular ban suggested that uh, when individuals have to recite the citizenship oath, this is the last, last, last part of a very long naturalization process. You first have to get it lawfully. You have to reside in the country. You have to pass your citizenship citizenship test, then you get to the citizenship ceremony. This is usually done the sort of climax of the citizenship ceremony. You have to recite the, the citizenship course. Now legally, when I, I actually explored this, I was actually struck, legally you have to actually cite that oath in order to become an immigrant. So even if you pass the whole process button, you never recited the oath, you're not a citizen. I was just shocked, you know, there's a whole long history about why we have those citizenship oaths and it goes back to, I can talk about it later on, there's a whole history behind it. Nonetheless, uh, the conservatives knew that this was part of the act and they just, what they added was the requirement that if you have, if your face is covered, you're not permitted to take the oath publicly in the citizenship ceremony. This was the whole, that, that was the only technical thing they changed. Prior to that, the policy was that you were able to make a claim and then you had to recite the oath in private in front of an immigration judge. So you're not waived from making that statement, you just didn't have to do it publicly. When you did it privately, you were permitted to have your face covered. Okay, that's the background. Now, this, as I told you, this was done in a very strange technical way. It was hard to challenge it legally. However, there, were, uh, there was a legal challenge that went before the federal court and then the federal court of appeal. On both counts, the government lost. That is, it was held that this particular ban was not constitutional. However, we never got a real uh, full-blown uh, principle decision. Both decisions were absolutely technical. So we never actually got a statement, say, from the Supreme Court of Canada about why this is not permissible. It was just said on technical grounds, the way that the government did it, this was not permissible. However, in the court of public opinion, which is uh, the, the court that we're talking about now, there was tremendous support. Over 2,000 Canadians thought that it made perfect sense to actually ask someone when they recite the oath as the final step of the citizenship process. So on the cusp of membership, right, that very, very symbolic moment when you're becoming a member of a new community, people thought that there was no reason not to ask people to uh, remove, uh, remember, this is a religious empire, uh, 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 and the argument was that this is a special moment, you have to show that you're loyal to your new community. We can have a long discussion about whether or not we're convinced by that argument, but two-thirds of Canadians held a very strong, stable position that this was, um, that the ban was at least in principle justifiable. 
The second example, again, going along the same lines, of course, we heard now in the recent uh, conservative um, leadership uh, race, the argument that uh, newcomers, potential immigrants, should be screened according to their adherence to Canadian values. How would you define those values? How could you ever screen it that the idea was a face-to-face -face kind of an interview? It's very, very costly to do it. You're really worried about biases if this were ever introduced. There's a whole set of range of concerns about it, and I don't think we will actually see it implemented anytime soon. However, again, public support was tremendously strong for this particular uh, kind of, um, of argument. It really resonated well with voters. That, again, if we're thinking about a potential um, kind of shift in public opinion, I think we should pay attention to that. So the data, again, was roughly two-thirds across Canada. If we're looking at Quebec, three-quarters of Quebecers supported uh, this particular policy. And the last example, the third example that I will use, again, refers to Quebec. You remember the debate about the Charter of Values in Quebec. Of course, it was defeated. Um, but nonetheless, again, this notion that there is some kind of a cultural requirement that you need to become Canadian in a very, very specific way is what I'm pointing to. And I think we should pay attention. The reason why I would suggest we want to pay attention to this is because we might sit here in Toronto and say, ah, oh, come on, you know, why is this? Does this make any sense? We can dismiss these claims, etc. But I think it would be a great mistake. It would be a great mistake based on what we've seen in Europe. We know that the referendums for years showed that there was a great resentment to the kind of Europe, sort of EU kind of policies, but this was always dismissed. Oh, the people didn't get it. Or they're just being extremists, etc. You know, it came back to bite the EU in a very, very powerful way. So I would suggest we should pay attention to these questions. Perhaps we should have some kind of a measure uh, to uh, address them and counter them, but just ignoring them and saying that they are uh, not convincing, I think to me is not a satisfactory answer. Okay, I'm out of fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> honored and a little confused uh, to be on this amazing panel. Uh, I, as many of you know, am Canadian, but have been living in the States for a number of years, and so it's from that point of view that I will make my remarks. Um, could Trump happen here? I mean, maybe. Uh, it's, it might be improbable, but it's still in the realm of possibility. And what I want to argue is that, that if there's one lesson we should take from the 133 days, not that we're counting, of the Trump administration, it's that policies, norms, and narratives, the substance of what we identify as Canadian exceptionalism, uh, it can all be dismantled or reconfigured to serve different ends fairly easily. So there's been a lot of talk about um, exceptionalism lately. Let me start with the most obvious exceptionalism, which is American exceptionalism. It was most famously articulated by Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, and it's the idea that the tenacity of American democratic ideals is extraordinary or unparalleled. It's linked to what Lipset identified as the five pillars of the American creed, liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, populism, and laissez-faire governance. It enabled the American dream, and American exceptionalism is a national narrative that's deeply embedded in American culture, politics, and society. But American exceptionalism is, is malleable. It's powerful in its malleability. Trump uh, claimed exceptionalist sentiments like, as his own. Make America great again. Uh, the difference uh, here is that Trump ran and won on a platform explicitly based on the premise that America is in decline. 
Now, usually the claim that America is anything but amazing would be political suicide, but in this case, the campaign slogan was actually something like a marketing campaign. And like all marketing campaigns, it was designed to make us feel inadequate and insufficient, so that our electoral choices would be driven by a force more powerful than truth or logic, that longing for meaning and authenticity. Make America Great Again is a confession that America's exceptionalism has been lost somewhere along the way, and it's a strong man like Trump who can get it back. So the idea that there's this aspect of our national identity that's been lost, of course, is not unique to America. As Peter pointed out, there's kind of a global trend in this. Um, the Vote Leave campaign of Britain uh, ran under the slogan, Vote Leave, Take Back Control. In Australia, the two major political parties have largely agreed uh, on the campaign to stop the votes. In France, the Front National's campaign slogan is On a Chenou. Uh, and even though Keith Banting and Will Kimmelke have demonstrated that the global retreat from multiculturalism is far more rhetorical than anything else, rhetoric's powerful. We've just seen proof of that. Except here in Canada. So in October 2016, The Economist featured this cover of the Statue of Liberty wearing a maple leaf crown under the, the title, Liberty Moves North. And over the past few months since the election, there have been a number of writers, granted mostly Canadian writers, who have explored the concept of a Canadian exceptionalism. So it's grounded in the idea that while other countries have become increasingly insular, dominated by populist forces that call for a return to these cultural rooted, culturally rooted values, and argue for a pushback against globalization, Canada remains open to and optimistic about racial diversity. Uh, and has continued to promote multiculturalism as a core national value. And look, there's some truth to this. Canada has no mainstream anti-immigrant party, uh, as, as Peter pointed out. There's no uh, equivalent of Fox News, really. Uh, there's no political party calling for the rollback of free trade. There's no welfare state retrenchment, no abandonment of multiculturalism. We've welcomed 30,000 Syrian refugees. We continue to admit more than 300,000 immigrants every year. Uh, and uh, the government has recently attempted to promote reconciliation with indigenous populations. In the United States, uh, the, the contrast between Canadian exceptionalism and what has become of America is best embodied by uh, the American media's bizarre obsession with Justin Trudeau. Um, Trudeau is a self-proclaimed feminist. Trump is a self-evidenced misogynist. Trudeau is enthusiastic about evidence-based public policy. Trump has a nodding acquaintance with the truth. Trudeau is pro-environment and personally welcomes Syrian refugees. Syrian refugees at the airport. Trump has dismantled the EPA and fans the fires of xenophobia whenever he can via his Twitter account. Uh, and look, is Trudeau the leader of the free world? No. Uh, but he is an example of what rational governance can still look like. So this contrast between what Canada is and what America has quickly become uh, is uh, probably why on the evening of November 8, 2016, as it slowly became apparent that Trump was going to win the presidential election, Google searches of move to Canada spiked significantly. And uh, Canada's website, uh, Canada, the Canadian Department of Immigration and Citizenship's website crashed from all the traffic. But I don't want to forget here that exceptionalism is this inherently comparative concept. How is it that Canada has managed to be, remain so open 
while other places have, have closed their borders uh, and raised their drawbridges? Answers vary, but there are some broad agreements. Uh, first, the vast majority of Canadian immigrants are, of course, selected through the point system, which prioritizes people with certain economic skills. Second, as uh, I let mentioned, Canada's geography, having three oceans as borders helps. Uh, it also helps alleviate any public outcry over illegal immigration. Third, in his substantive essay on Canadian exceptionalism, Stephen Marsh argues that conservatives, conservatives in Canada are different than conservatives in America. They are, for lack of a better word, sane. Uh, and that wasn't me. That was Stephen Marsh. Uh, and fourth, Irene Blumrad argues that a key, the key to Canadian exceptionalism is our national ethos that values diversity and is supported by government policies of multiculturalism, anti-discrimination, and settlement programs that promote public integration. Um, look, there's also good reason to be skeptical of Canadian exceptionalism. First, and most obviously, race is a transnational concept. It was born and bred in the transnational sphere out of the Atlantic slave trade, the legacies of colonial rule, and the scientific racism of the 19th and 20th century. Race scholars like myself, there's a broad consensus on this idea. Um, and so there's always been this transnational logic to the operation of white supremacy. And to assume that Canada is magically immune from global racial formations is kind of naive. Second, uh, and here's the shameless self-promotion, um, there's clear evidence that there's racial stratification in this country along any number of socioeconomic indicators. So in 2015, Keith Banting and I were asked to write uh, a chapter on Canada for the American Political Science Association's Task Force on Racial Inequality uh, in the Americas, and we examined the puzzling persistence of racial inequality in Canada. That is, in spite of having this social, this robust social model and these egalitarian multicultural policies, there's still significant levels of racial inequality in this country. Why? Well, we argue that the key policy regimes with these egalitarian undertones like multiculturalism, immigration, the welfare state, the charter, and, and uh, Aboriginal policy were all put in place between 1960 and 1980 when Canada was super white. If you look at the 1981 census, we're still a 96% white country. So these, these policies were never actually intended to alleviate racial inequality, and they were never retooled to address racial inequality in the late 80s and 90s because there are these dominant narratives in our country that define difference in terms of ethnicity, language, and culture, and not race. And third, of course, if we are so tolerant and egalitarian, uh, the limits of our tolerance have often been set by our relationship to indigenous people. Um, so in this climate, is the Trumpization of Canada possible? Is it within the realm of possibility? My answer is yes. Um, Canada isn't protected by these, from these global trends of nativism by some innate moral superiority, but instead by political institutions and policy regimes and a different national narrative. And if there's one thing we should learn from the era of Trump, it's that these protections are insufficient. Ideas and institutions can change. It can all be dismantled. And more importantly, it can all, in a very short time, be weaponized as instruments of active harm against racial minorities, immigrants, and evidence-based public policy. So I want to give you an example of the, of the work that I'm doing right now, which is largely around racial justice. Um, so the Trump administration has, for example, fundamentally changed the, the mission of the Department of Justice in 133 days. 
Under Obama, the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice in the U.S. was interventionist. It went after banks that, sy that systematically steered uh, racial minorities towards subprime mortgages. It reduced the use of solitary confinement in federal prisons. Uh, it filed amicus briefs that defended affirmative action in the Supreme Court. It joined civil rights organizations in challenging restrictive voter ID laws. And it instructed schools to let transgender students use the bathrooms of their choice. The DOJ also used its ability to investigate police departments uh, for racial discriminatory practices and uh, was instrumental in, in uh, creating consent decrees, decrees, which necessitate that police departments implement changes that are then monitored by the courts. And this happened, of course, in Ferguson, Chicago, and Baltimore. So in the 133 days since Trump took office, the mission of the DOJ has changed dramatically. Uh, in January, Trump fired Assistant uh, Attorney General, thank you, Assistant uh, Attorney General Sally Yates when she refused to defend the travel ban on seven Muslim countries. In February, guidelines issued by the Department of Homeland Security uh, broadened the definition of who is considered a priority for deportation and called for the Justice Department to send more judges to the border to turn people back as quickly as possible using a process that barely can be considered due process. Uh, in March, Trump issued an executive order that expands deportation priorities by criminalizing anyone who's in the country illegally, making the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. a top priority for deportation. So between January and March, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, arrested 21,000 immigrants, a 33% increase from, from the same period last year. And of those arrested, 5,500 have no history of violating any law whatsoever. In April, Jeff Sessions ordered a comprehensive review of all reform uh, agreements between the federal government and police forces across the country. Given that Sessions has criticized consent decrees as federal overreach, it's likely the DOJ will actually withdraw from the agreements that are currently in place or are pending. In April, the Justice Department argued before the Supreme Court that the government has the right to revoke the citizenship of uh, Americans who made even trivial misstatements on their naturalization proceedings, including not disclosing a criminal defense, a criminal offense of any kind, even if there was no arrest. So what this means is that if you at one point drove 60 in a 55 zone, miles per hour, not kilometers, you committed a, a, an offense and had to disclose that during your naturalization proceedings or risk being deported or having your, your citizenship revoked. In late April, the DOJ sent a letter to the officials in New York, Chicago, New Orleans, Philadelphia, and other sanctuary cities that received a specific kind of federal funding, warning them that they had to be in compliance with, with ICE uh, mandates and couldn't withhold information from ICE um, in order to receive said funding. Uh, the subtext of this letter, of course, was that if uh, these cities fail to um, comply, they would, in fact, uh, lose the federal funding. In early May, Sessions instructed federal prosecutors to seek the strongest charges possible against any defendants they target, effectively rescinding Obama-era guidelines that stopped prosecutors from using terrible laws and policies like mandatory minimum sentences, which are at the heart of our, our issues around mass incarceration. Sessions has also given every indication he wants to bring back the war on drugs, including harsher punishments for using and distributing marijuana, even as it's increasingly uh, illegalized in various states. 
DOJ has also completely reversed its position on voting rights before the courts, um, dropping the key uh, claim that Texas intended to discriminate in its uh, uh, voter ID law. Um, and this is particularly important because according to the Brennan Center for Justice, this year 46 bills were proposed to restrict access to voting registration uh, in 21 states. This legislation, of course, is likely to have a disproportionate impact on racial minorities who tend to vote Democrat. Uh, Last week, Trump's proposed budget would set aside hundreds of millions of dollars to increase the number of federal prosecutors and immigration judges seeking to expand the machinery of prosecution and deportation. So look, this isn't any kind of democratic aberration. This is incredibly democratic, actually. It's all legal. Uh, it's all done through normal channels of government, uh, of, of governance in the executive branch. And even though the civil rights system in the US was designed to protect the rights of minorities against the, tyr the tyranny of the majority, it's very easy to reverse that. So uh, is a Trumpization of, of a candidate possible? Of, of course it's possible. We have to be vigilant against it. Um, and if it can happen in a system, a political system that's primarily based on political obstruction, then we should be really wary that it could happen anywhere. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, now for something completely different. Um, Trumpization can be operationalized in many ways, and I'm going to operationalize it in a very different way than from what we've heard. I'm going to talk about the possibility of a Trump-like character defined as someone from outside of the traditional political world, a non-office holder, someone not particularly involved in any one political party, who may or may not share the views of that party, in a sense becoming leader of the party and a candidate then potentially... Oops. What did I do? How do I advance these? Just the next, the, 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 uh, the arrows on the keyboard. Just press this. That's it. Sorry. Okay. 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 Um, so in Canada, that's essentially one of the political parties. Because I argue that institutions matter, and such a character would need a vehicle to get to the prime ministership. You can't do it as an independent in Canada, there's not space for sort of a Ross Perot type character. But indeed it would take, and, and starting a new party is a, a difficult endeavor that someone like a Trump probably wouldn't want to spend the time and energy doing. So it essentially would involve a takeover, I would argue, of one of the principal parties that has shown the capacity to form government and to win elections. So either the Conservatives or the Liberals in, in Canada. Um, well, in thinking about how this could happen, I think there are a, a few things that are important and worth uh, considering. One is the process of party leadership selection and review, and that's what I'm going to talk about principally today. Um, a second is manifesto politics within a party. I may or may not be able to get to that, and I won't be able to get to sort of the leader's authority, um, but I think that's an important uh, component of this as well. In terms of party leadership selection, there are essentially, I think, four key considerations um, for, for, for this topic. The first is that there's a wide open franchise in terms of who's able to vote in these contests. The second is that there are very loose candidacy requirements, essentially anybody's able to run. The third is that there are no, there's no gatekeeping role for parliamentarians. And the fourth is that it's very difficult to remove a leader in the Canadian context. And I'm gonna say a few words about each of these. 
In terms of the franchise, but really in terms of all of these, it's important to uh, start from the understanding that all of these rules and processes are defined by the political parties themselves. There's essentially no legal regulation in Canada of the way party leaders are selected. And keep in mind that these are very long campaigns, not unusually 12 months or more in length. Well, the requirements for the franchise as I said, are very wide open. For the Conservatives, you need to be a party member. The Liberals don't even have party members anymore. You simply need to register as a supporter. You only need to be 14 years of age, so no requirement to be of majority age, as is the case in general election. You have to live in Canada, but there's no citizenship requirement, so again, it's more lax in a general election. But there is a cutoff date, it's about six weeks for the Liberals, 60 days for the Conservatives, but that's from counting back from voting from when the results are announced. So that means in a 12-month campaign, you have 10 months of the campaign or more to register and be an eligible voter. No fee for the Liberals, because they don't have members anymore, you just sign up as a supporter. $15 for the Conservatives. You have to pledge that you don't belong to another political party, um, and that you share the, the founding principles, if you will, of the party you're joining, but these aren't in any way enforceable. The parties, um, there's no national register of party members, so you can't go and easily find out if somebody belongs to a different party. They don't share that information among themselves, so the, the would-be voters word is taken for this. When you join the Conservative Party, you choose to join for one to five years. So if you joined four years ago, you were eligible to vote in this contest if you took out a five-year membership. For the Liberals, once you sign up as a registered supporter, you have voting rights for three years. What are the implications of this? Well, it means it's a very fluid, ill-defined electorate. At the outset of the contest, we have no idea what the voting group is going to look like come voting day. That's very different than a general election. We have relatively short length of membership required. Uh, if we look at other countries around the world and parliamentary parties, it's not unusual to find six months, one year, in some cases two years, a length of membership requirement before one is vested with voting rights. Um, in some cases, like New Zealand Labour, um, in their last contest, uh, the ability to vote in the contest was frozen as of the date that the previous leader resigned. So there was no sort of ability to sign up new people. There's no party activism requirement. Again, we can contrast this with other parties around the world that require that you attend a couple meetings of your local party branch before you're eligible to vote in a party contest. So the result is significant mobilization of new voters. Um, as we saw in the conservative contest, depending on what you consider the starting point, membership went from about 60 or 70,000 to more than 250,000 during the course of the campaign. Excuse me, and that's not at all unusual for the electorate, if you will, to, to triple or quadruple in size. And many of these new voters then have little connection to the party. They have, they're not the activists, they're not the people who have been going to conventions and voting on party policy and the like. And we know that they leave the contest, and meet many of them, a majority of them, uh, shortly after the leadership vote. The result is, as Joe Clark famously said in 1998, that these contests are often populated by quote-unquote tourists to the party. Um, those of you who remember the 1998 contest will recall that on the final ballot, it was an elimination ballot, Mr. Clark ran against David Orchard. David Orchard's principal policy position, his plank, was to do away with US-Canada free trade, which was the principal accomplishment, many would argue, of the prior progressive conservative government. 
Um, so these were, and he, his supporters were mobilized in. They were not people who had been working in the Conservative Party or who had traditionally been progressive conservatives. So it's wide open to this kind of mobilization, if you will. Well, in terms of candidacy, we also find that it's pretty much wide open. For the Liberals, there's a requirement that you be a registered supporter, same as a voter. Um, no time length association, associated with that. For the Conservatives, you have to have been a member for six months Again, coming back from voting day, so you could wait till halfway through the campaign and then join the party. And there's even provision for this to be waived in quote-unquote special uh, circumstances. You require 300 signatures in either party from party members. Um, you have to be eligible to sit in the House of Commons, but you don't actually have to hold a seat in the House of Commons. And you have to pledge that you support the party's founding principles, which are motherhood kinds of things. And you have to pay a candidate fee, and in some cases, a good behavior deposit in order to be able to run. But that's about it. The implications, no requirement to be a member of parliament. This is highly unusual in parliamentary systems, that almost all of them require the political parties do, that in order to be eligible to run for leadership, you hold a seat in the lower house of parliament. Um, not the case in Canada, of course, we've had many leaders who didn't hold a seat in parliament at the time they were chose. Uh, there's no gatekeeping role for parliamentarians. So you need 300 signatures from party members. None of them need from par be from parliamentarians. This, again, is very unusual in uh, parliamentary systems. Look at the UK, where we can see examples. In the Conservative Party, it's the parliamentary party that, through a series of sequential balloting, narrows the field down to two, and then the party members choose from those two offered to them by the parliamentary party. In Labour, there's a requirement of a number of signatures from the parliamentary party. It varies depending on whether you're in opposition or government. It's about 15%. Um, and we've seen that come into play. So when Gordon Brown was acclaimed as leader of Labour, there were other Labour MPs who wanted to run and tried to mount campaigns but couldn't get the necessary support among their parliamentary colleagues to be able to run. The Corbyn case is, is an interesting example. He didn't have enough support either the first time he was going to run. And a few MPs looking back on, on the Brown case and thinking that wasn't good for the party not to have a contest in a debate, sort of lent them their support so he could run. Margaret Beckett, the former foreign secretary, then said, quote unquote, she was a moron to have done so. Uh, but again, there's a gatekeeping role there, which we don't have in Canada. So essentially, any Canadian able to pay the fee and over age 18 can run. Um, it's important to think about the electoral system as well that's used um, in these contests. It's essentially one member, one vote, um, though there is some weighting, as we know, by, by riding to equalize the, the importance of each of the 338 electoral districts. But this as well means that there's no special role for MPs, not just as gatekeepers, but the votes of parliamentarians count the same as the votes of all the new members who are mobilized into the contest. And this is somewhat unusual as well. When we look around the world, it, it's quite common, think of the Australian Labour Party, where the votes of parliamentarians count for 50% of the total, and the votes of the members count for 50%. In New Zealand Labour, it's 40-40-20, with trade unions getting 20% of the vote. Fine Gael gives, I think, 65% to their, their parliamentarians. Of course, so in Canada, no special role. So it's, it's relatively easy then for an outsider um, without institutional support within the party. There are some challenges though. So what the picture I presented seems it's wide open. Anybody can come in with, with money and, and, and bring in new people and win. 
But there are some caveats to this. And the first is that the system really does require an organization in order to be successful. It's, not, it's somewhat complicated to be able to identify the, the couple hundred thousand members you might have to, potential members, and to sign them up and get them registered so that they're eligible to vote. Um, it's not the case that there's sort of widespread, if you think of the US case, party registration, and you can simply appeal to people in the mass media, get their support, and, and then convert that into votes. The second is the point system that weights the importance of each riding has some importance here as well because it means you have to be organized across the country. And it's a pretty diverse uh, and large geographic country, so that makes it a bit more uh, difficult. And the majority requirement. All of the parties in Canada for leadership selection require that the winner be chosen by a majority rule. And I think that's very important. If you think of the Trump case, um, you know, that wasn't the case that he was a majority choice, particularly early on in the primaries, and it might have been a very different <coughs> result if one had to have majority support. So I think these three things work against uh, sort of an outside character coming in. Um, also, our campaign finance laws, which make it, this is the one place where these contests are publicly regulated, at least partially, and you can't come in and fund your own campaign. Um, there's a, the limit, I believe, is $25,000 that an individual can spend on their own leadership campaign. Well, these things are expensive. The Conservatives set a $5 million limit. Um, also, you can't take contributions from corporations or trade unions, and individual contributions are limited to about $1,500. So again, you need an organization to be able to raise the millions of dollars that's necessary in order to run a viable campaign. I mean, Mr. O'Leary is even now finding that he can't pay his creditors, right? Because he'd like to, uh, supposedly, he says, by writing them a check, but he can't because he's run up against this $25,000 limit and would have to raise money um, in order to be able to have the funds to do so. Really quickly, but what if someone succeeded and, and became, took over one of these parties and becomes prime minister? Well, if they're 133 days, they did all the things that Deborah sort of had talked about, we'll toss them out, right? Hold on, not so quick. We know parties have leadership review processes, but both the Liberals and the Conservatives have changed their rules to say that these processes only come into play after a general election, so the leader's guaranteed one kick at the can, and after a general election in which they don't form government. Now the older folks in the room will say, wait a minute, we remember Mr. Martin challenging Mr. Cretchen after the Liberals won in 2000. Yes, and after Mr. Martin succeeded and took over the party, one of the first things his supporters did was change the party constitution to say a sitting prime minister couldn't be challenged. Um, Really quickly, in terms of leaders, leader authority, uh, a few things to keep in mind. If, if a leader was to, someone was to take over one of these parties, the strong party discipline, the near sole authority that the party leader has when serving as prime minister to appoint people to cabinet and parliamentary secretaries, that's not universal in the parliamentary world. There are cases where parties form government and caucus selects the body of MPs who will serve as ministers, not in our case. The absolute authority of the leader to withhold party renomination for re-election, um, which then factors into the, to the strong party, party discipline. And the last thing then, the, the near complete authority of the leader over the party's manifesto politics. We have no requirement, unlike parliamentary parties and some other systems, um, where party congress or the party MPs have to vote and, and, and adopt the party platform for an election. The leader and his or her close coterie of election of, of campaign uh, officials really control that. I'll stay, stay on my time, Lawrence. You have your time. Excellent. Okay.
So in the couple of minutes we have left, by my count, nine, um, I can open up the floor to any comments. If our speakers do want to come up here or sit and turn around, I don't know. If there's any questions of speakers, and please speak up because we know sessions are starting at 1.30, so I know people have to get places as well. Any questions? One over here. Sorry. Can you stand up? No, sorry. It's the best way to do it. Sorry. So, I really enjoyed the presentation. My question is for Professor Cross, just related to the uh, sort of leadership rules and the impact that have. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit more specifically on how that affected the conservative leadership race, which I'm thinking, like, obviously Kevin O'Leary, but I'm also thinking about Kelly Leach because it's a little bit different for her because she was a party insider, but she did really bad. Uh, so I just wanted to get a comment on that a little bit. Um, yeah, O'Leary is the obvious example of someone trying to do this, and I think finding out that it's much more difficult in, in our system and under our rules than in, in the U.S. context. And there, I think, financing and the organization required made that more difficult. Leach's case, I think the length of the campaign before people were voting really mattered. Um, I mean, you know, some of the early polling, and Greg and others would know more about this probably, but would suggested that she had some initial support. Um, but with such a long campaign before any voting takes place, as opposed to primaries going on, you know, month after month or week after week, and with the U.S. kind of example, I think made it more difficult for her to sustain that message. And as more people got mobilized into the party, then who weren't necessarily supportive of those views, that may have had an impact as well. Yes. Um, so I'd just like to ask, um, granted, the electoral system has not changed and likely to change, but in our current system, it does create opportunities for regional, um, uh, regional exceptions for the current party system. And what I'd like to do, particularly, uh, look at your comments on Quebec. So in the Quebec election, we saw a famous clock at Quad with the uh, drop of oil turning into a decal. And it seems to me that there's that there's potentially a real opportunity for the block to come out with a left-wing populism um, that has uh, some of the elements of what we're seeing in Trump in terms of anti-immigrant. And I'm first to how you feel about that possibility here in Canada. I mean, it's, it's a good question. I'll say two things about it. I mean, one is that obviously the I mean, Quebec politics at the, at the provincial level. To, to, to take it down a level are deeply important. It's a large sub-state and they, and they do a lot of important things and they have some control over immigration and the extent to which you can win there by leveraging what actually is a, a fundamental difference. Opinion structure is, is, is alarming. Um, but my sense is that, you know, it's, uh, we, we do have a real world test case of that and, and, and the last election was a good example that the bloc could do a little bit of that, but, um, you know, there's not a sufficient coalition for that kind of politics across the whole country. And if voters are prioritizing this, the building of a national government, they were in the last election, that's my sense, they wanted to see some sort of a national government on the left. Um, you know, that, that uh, uh, there's just not enough consanguinity between that, the politics there and, and in other regions to, to build a coalition based on, but clearly, I mean, the, 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 the PQ does okay by this, right? I mean, not great, but okay by it. So there's clearly more appetite for it there than other places. Yeah, um, 
Yes, just for the panel, I just wonder, I mean, focus everything on, to focus everything on Trump, I think leaves out a lot of kind of the authoritarian populist government we just had for 10 years. You know, we, um, you know, they used a lot of authoritarian populist discourses. Yes, immigration levels stayed around, you know, 250,000 a year, but we had significant attacks on refugees, a significant amount of Islamophobia, you know, the scrapping of the census, like a long list of policies with no real social scientific evidence and, you know, very harsh justifications for that. And the Conservatives, it seems no matter what they do, have a 30% base of support. And they only had about 300,000 less votes in that election. And it took, you know, one of the highest turnouts we've had in decades amongst the disgusted population to, to get rid of the party. So I think this focus on Trump actually under overlooks a lot of the dangers we faced and what we actually recently experienced in Canada. So, I think we did have a lot of our Trump moments, and we shouldn't be forgetting that. Yeah, I mean, my own sense would be that, that I happen to have had the nice natural experiment of living in the States this year, and I think you could, I'll just be comfortable and say, I think you, you could stack up the, the experience of most people in Canada who would be, you know, subject to authoritarian attacks, and then ask them, you know, how they would feel if they were living in America, and it's, it's two different worlds right now. I mean, I think you can say Harper does this, it looks a little authoritarian now, it's a little authoritarian. They characterize in the last government as authoritarian populist, is to do, is to not know much about what's going on in other countries where there's been genuine authoritarians, and to, uh, uh, and to really not understand the scope of just how much Trump is doing. I mean, Deborah's described 135 days of assaults on rights that, uh, that, that by my measure are several scores beyond anything the last Prime Minister did. I mean, as much as I like the census data, I think, I think we're talking about another world. And it's, it's not a good comparison in my, in my estimation, but Deborah may have a sense of this, but I, but I sense that it's, it's another world. Yeah, I mean, uh, in some ways you can talk about at least with the, the disregard for evidence-based public policy, yeah, that, that could be the hybridization of America uh, with some of that, but um, yeah, it is, it is things going on. Well, I'm not here, so I don't know how different they are. So one last question at the back. And it actually follows up on this point. You could argue that Harper won precisely because he brought in cultural communities into his coalition. And I, I'd be interested in analysis of whether this can happen in Canada because of the demographics and the way that our electoral district associations are centered in, in urban areas. Uh, if you take the Cornell, Belcher, and Christopher Parker point of view that Trump is a function of, of um, anti-white sentiment in the United States, could that possibly ever happen in Canada with the demographics that we have? Uh, you could argue that Harper lost because he lost the support of racialized minorities in Canada. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, uh, I'm not an expert on, on voting registration in the U.S., but one of the things, like, one of the important points that hasn't been emphasized about the rise of Trump is the way in which racial minorities in the United States have systematically been prevented from registering to vote in a number of states. Almost like Texas proposed its voter ID law two hours after the Shelby County v. Boulder decision came down from the Supreme Court. There are a number of, of, of states which have, which have put these um, restrictions in place 
which uh, had stripped people of, of the right to vote. Not to mention that felons can't vote, you know, if a third of black men have uh, felonies on the record because of mass incarceration. Um, so the mass disenfranchisement of racial minorities in the US, I haven't seen that in Canada, but I also, again, I don't, I'm not here and I don't know the data on that particularly well. Well, we've come to 1.30, I think, and so I'm going to join with me in thanking our panelists.